Well, good morning, and uh, welcome to the second week that we've been doing in a series that we started last week that we've been calling No End in Death. And uh, if you are a guest with us this morning or this is your first time here, let me just say thank you so much for being here. And uh, we count it an absolute honor uh, that you would spend your Sunday morning with us. And especially through this series as we're kind of dealing with what we've been calling uh, one of the more difficult but also one of the most common questions slash objections that surrounds the Christian faith. And so the question that we're primarily dealing with in this series is a popular one. It's one that's been asked many different times in many different ways. It's also a very difficult question. And basically, it's this. How can a loving God um, allow pain, suffering, and loss? And, uh, and so that's the question we're trying to dig at at this series. How can a loving God allow for pain, suffering, and loss? And basically, uh, what we've been saying is, man, this is, this is a question that is very, very common. It's been asked all throughout the, the ages, different times, different places, lots of debates on this topic, lots of conversations, lots of commentary uh, that surrounds this. And a very, very common fact, my guess is that all of us in this room, probably at one point or another, have legitimately asked this question. How can a loving God allow for pain, suffering, and loss? We look at the, the things that happen in the world. We look at the things in the news, uh, the terrible things that we see in the media. And we look in our own lives, and we see the pain and the hurt and the frustration and the loss that we deal with. And we have a hard time reconciling how could a loving God allow for these things to happen if he really cares for us and he's really powerful and he can really stop it. Um, then why would that all kind of take place? So we said it's a common question. We said it's a difficult question. The other thing we said last week, if you're with us, is we said not only is this a common question, we said it's also more than a philosophical question. Uh, this is not just some philosophical, theoretical question. More than that, it's a deeply personal question. And, and so for some of you right now, maybe you're facing, you're in the crucible of pain and suffering and loss, and, and you are finding that you're not looking for a philosophical response right now. You're looking for a personal response. This is an emotionally charged subject when you talk about this, and it's close to the heart. And so because of that, that's why we're doing this series. And so in this series, we're basically taking six weeks, and we're dealing with this topic. We're trying to address this question head on, and we're trying to look at what is the biblical response to that question. How can a loving God allow for pain, suffering, and for loss? And, uh, and so that's what we're doing. If you were with us last week, we started the series off. We actually begin this series by looking at uh, what I believe is a more foundational question. And so last week, we talked actually all about the resurrection. And we said that the starting point for this conversation and the foundation of the topic of pain and suffering really begins with the, with the resurrection. And we said that's kind of the foundation that guides us through this whole series. And so if you missed last week, I would strongly encourage you to go back, catch up on that. Um, You can catch that online if you want to. You can download our podcast. You can also subscribe to our app. All that is for free and is for you. And so we'd encourage you to kind of check that out. But this week, as we're continuing in this conversation, uh, we're going to look together at another principle that we're going to find as it relates to this topic. And we're going to do that by looking at the book of Job, chapter 38. So if you've got your Bibles, I want to encourage you to grab them with me. And let's go ahead and turn to Job, chapter 38. Okay, so get your Bibles if you got them. And go ahead and turn there. If you did not bring a Bible with you this morning... Uh, That is not a problem at all. We actually have some Bibles for you. And so you can grab those Bibles that are underneath your chairs. And you can take those out and you can turn to page 370. So you're going to find the book of Job chapter 38. So go ahead and get there. If you do not own a Bible, just flat out, and you want one, just take one of ours. Make it a gift from us to you. So Job chapter 38. As you're flipping to Job chapter 38 too, for the sake of our conversation, let me kind of start by uh, by kind of telling you a brief story to sort of set things up. So... um, when I was in my early 20s, I had this really, really unique opportunity, really cool opportunity uh, to go camping and whitewater rafting out in Colorado. It was awesome. 
And so basically I had a group of buddies, uh, a couple of my friends, and we were actually working at a camp, a summer camp, and we had a couple of weeks before summer camp started. And so we decided we're going to take advantage of those couple of weeks. We're going to do something kind of fun. And so we decided we were going to go to Colorado, which none of us had ever been there. And we decided we were going to go camping, which none of us had much experience in. And we we're going to go whitewater rafting, which none of us had ever done. And so here we were, we had a lot of excitement, we had a lot of enthusiasm, but we had very little knowledge and we had no experience, which you guys know is either like a recipe for disaster or it's a recipe for a really great story. It all depends on how it ends. And so we're like, let's go for it, man, let's do it. So we loaded up in my buddy's car. He had a 1982 Oldsmobile something or another, thing was rusted out, had about 180,000 miles on it. So we piled in his car, we packed up all of our camping gear, which consisted of um, Walmart sleeping bags and my friend's dad tent, and uh, we just drove, made a 25-hour drive um, pretty much nonstop to Buena Vista, Colorado, and I'm just telling you, man, if you've never been out uh, to the Colorado mountains before and been out that way, it is absolutely breathtaking, some of the most beautiful scenery I have ever seen, and uh, just, it's spellbinding, so we drove out there, went to Colorado, made the, made the drive pretty much nonstop, and we set up our, our camp at about 11,000 feet, so really, really high altitude uh, there in Buena Vista. And so after we kind of set up the camp and the tent and all that kind of stuff, we, we had just spent about 25 hours driving pretty much nonstop. So we were pretty eager to stretch our legs. And so after we set up the tent and, and the camp, we said, hey, why don't we go stretch our legs out and take a hike? Like, that sounds like a great idea. And so we were looking at the landscape, and here you have all these mountaintops around you. So one of my friends said, hey, there, there's a mountain over there. It looks kind of small. looks kind of close. I said, how about we go climb that mountain real quick? real quick, right? Let's go climb the mountain real quick. And so we were all like, yeah, that sounds cool. And we're like, we were kind of looking at it. We're trying to size it up. We said, how long do you think it's going to take us to get over there and get up that mountain? We're like, I don't know. It looks pretty close. It looks pretty small. I bet it'll take us a half hour. We'll get up that thing in about a half hour. We'll come back down. It'll be an hour flat for us to get up and down. Now, some, some of you guys are chuckling because you know what I didn't. And that is out there, everything is deceptively big. I mean, it's just massive. And so long story short, what we thought was going to take us 30 minutes to get to the top of this mountain, four and a half hours later, we found ourselves at the top of the mountain. And once we got to the top, it became very apparent to us very quick that we were in trouble. First off, we realized none of us had brought any water. And so here we are on top of this mountain, and we are totally dehydrated, dying to get a drink. On top of that, the other thing I didn't really account for, none of us accounted for because we hadn't been to Colorado, is what altitude can do to your body. Now, I knew that Colorado was higher above sea level than Ohio. I knew that, but I didn't calculate what the effects of that would be on your body. So we are now at probably twelve or 13,000 feet. And so I, I remember I had this terrible altitude headache just because of the, the altitude change. And we were out of breath. We were huffing and puffing. And so we had no water. And, and we, we all had these terrible altitude headaches. And then on top of all that, to make matters worse, it was getting dark now. So the sun had went down. And so, as you know, it gets really, really cold out in Colorado because the air is so thin. And all we had on was t-shirts and jeans and tennis shoes. We didn't have hiking boots. And then to top all that off, we're dehydrated, we're freezing. And now to top all of it off, we had to make our way down this mountain in the dark, down the crags, down the cliffs to a campsite that we had been to once. And, and I'm just telling you, man, any laughing or joking that was going on on the way up that mountain stopped on the way down. There was none of that. And we were terrified. I'm just telling you, there's been a few times in my life that I've actually been fearful for my life, but that was one of them. I was like, I do not know if we're going to make it 
down this mountain. It's, it's by God's grace we finally made it down. But I learned something that day, and what I learned was we were entirely unprepared to face that mountain. We were entirely unprepared to face that mountain. Now, why do I tell you that story? Here's why I tell you that story. We're talking about pain, and we're talking about suffering, and we're talking about loss, right? And, and what I have found, and I'm sure what you guys know as well, is that every single one of us in this room, every single one of us, at some point or another, will face that mountain. And so either you have or you are or you're going to, but that's one thing that's common in the human experience is that all of us, none of us are exempt from this, right? It's like uh, Wesley, Prince Wesley said in The Princess Bride to Princess Buttercup, if you might remember, the great theologian, Wesley, uh, when he said, um, he said, life is pain, your highness, and anyone who tells you differently is trying to sell you something, right? And he's onto something there because he knows uh, what's true is that life is full of pain and life is full of suffering and life is full of loss and none of us are exempt from that. And so part of the reason that we want to do this series is because we want to prepare for that. We're all going to face the mountain. My guess is, for some of you this morning, you're in the midst of pain, you're in the midst of suffering, you're in the midst of loss, and you know better than I do that when you find yourself in those places, you come to find that it's bigger than you thought, it's harder than you thought. And for some of you right now, you're actually asking the question, I do not know if I'm going to get through this. I don't know if my faith is going to survive what I'm going through right now. Some of you right now are saying to yourself, I don't know if I'm going to be able to get through this situation without losing the best parts of myself. How do you do that? And, and we come to realize, man, it's bigger than I thought. It, it's harder than I thought. And I'm not sure I'm going to make it. And so in this series, what we really want to do is we want to prepare us for what's inevitable, that we're facing pain and suffering and loss. So let me tell you the game plan of how we're going to kind of navigate through this series. So here's the game plan. This is a six-week series, and each week what we're doing is we're introducing what we're calling an anchor statement. So we're looking at six anchor statements. And let me kind of explain what those are. These anchor statements are basically unassailable principles that come directly from the Bible, okay? And our hope is that we can kind of give you these six anchor statements and they can serve as anchors when the storm of pain and suffering comes into your life. And these can serve as guideposts as you're going through pain and suffering and loss. When you're facing that mountain, these are intended to serve as a cold drink of water to the dehydrated soul, right? This is to serve as a warm coat to a cold faith, right? You tracking with me? So that's what we're going for in this series is we want to try to equip you for suffering and for pain and for loss. And when we look at biblical truths that can bear weight when you're in the midst of it, right? Because we don't want you to be unprepared. Now, let me just also say this series is for everybody. It's for everybody. And so if you're a person right now that's like, I'm not going through pain, I'm not going through suffering, I'm not experiencing loss, so I don't need this, that's not true. Because when is the best time to prepare for a storm? The best time to prepare for a storm is before the storm hits, right? And so, and so the best time, listen, the time that I needed to learn to go hiking in the mountains of Colorado was before I went hiking in the mountains of Colorado, okay? It's the same thing with pain and suffering too. The best time that you can be equipped with, with biblical truth to get through this is, uh, is before you face it. Now, of course, for some of you right now, you are facing pain and suffering loss in a very real way. And if that's the case, then of course, obviously, this series is for you. It's for you. But I do feel like I need to be fair, and I feel like I need to warn you a little bit about these six anchor statements. If you're in the, if you're in the face of pain and suffering and loss right now, I need to warn you because one thing that I've learned, and you would know, many of you, I can't even fathom what you're going through, and you know better than I do, that sometimes when you're in the midst of hard situations, that the pain screams so loudly that it's difficult to hear truth, Right? 
And, and what I've found personally, and what you probably know better than I do, is sometimes when people say true things in the midst of suffering, it can sound patronizing. And, and maybe you're experiencing that right now. Maybe you're going through hard things and you've had really well-intentioned people tell you things like God is in control and everything's gonna be fine and God works out all things and it sounds patronizing and it sounds minimizing and it sounds like it's just flippant, right? And, and, and listen, I understand that. Right? I understand that saying true things in the midst of suffering can sound patronizing. It's like telling a woman who's giving birth, right? Going up to her in the midst of giving birth and saying, you should rejoice in this because this is the miracle of life, Right? You're like, is that true? Yes, that's true. Is that the right time to say that statement? No, that's a good way to get your face rearranged, right? You're not gonna, you don't do that in that time. And so listen, I understand that. I understand that for some of you right now, pain is screaming so loudly that it can be hard to hear truth. And so please, I just want you to understand that some of these truths might sound patronizing. That is not the intention, right? That's not the intention. Uh, we're not, we don't wanna minimize what you're going through or even, or even claim that we understand the fullness of your pain right now. Instead, we wanna come beside you and journey with you. That's why we offer things like this grief class right now. And if there's ways we can do that, we would love to. But my prayer is also this, is that even while pain is screaming in your ears that you would be able to hear this truth. You'd be able to hear it because it's true. And these six anchor statements can hold weight. They can bear weight, all right? So six anchor statements. We actually gave you the first one last week. The first one last week was quite simply the title of the series. We said one of the anchor statements that's gonna get you through suffering, it's gonna serve as a guidepost, it's gonna serve as an anchor, is this, no end in death. The resurrection tells us death does not have the final say. The resurrection tells us that suffering, pain, and loss are not in vain, that they do not have finality to them because the resurrection informs us. We talked all about that last week. We said the resurrection is the foundation for the Christian hope. And so we talked about that. And if you missed that, I'd encourage you to kind of check that out. But this week, as we keep looking at these principles, we're gonna find the next one in the book of Job. And you have that opened up, of course. Before we jump in, though, let me give you a little background on the book of Job. All right, so the book of Job, uh, many of you maybe are vaguely familiar with the book of Job. Uh, the book of Job, anytime you talk about pain and suffering and loss, you always wanna go to Job. And the reason is because um, the book of Job is all about that topic. Uh, Job is the longest book in the Bible that's dedicated to pain and suffering and loss. It's 42 chapters. But in addition to that, not only is it the longest book in the Bible dedicated to this topic, did you know that the book of Job is also the oldest book in the Bible? And most commentators agree that the book of Job is actually the first written book that we have in the Bible. It's the oldest book, which I find fascinating because that tells us that the question of pain and suffering is literally the oldest question in the book. Isn't it fascinating that when God decided that he was going to initiate the Bible, the first place he started was with the common question that most of us ask, what's common to all human experience, this question of pain and suffering and loss. And so he did that. So the book of Job basically starts off and it introduces us to this guy named Job. Looks like Job, but his name is Job. And so basically the Bible tells us within the first couple of chapters about Job, it tells us Job is a good guy. Um, he, was a, he was a man of integrity. He was a man who loved his family. He was a man of faith. He loved God. And the Bible tells us in addition to all of that, he also was a very wealthy man. And so, so he, from a worldly standpoint, Job had everything that most of us are chasing. He was wealthy. He was healthy. And he was happy. He had all of those things. He had a big family. He was successful. Job had all of that. But very quickly in the book of Job, we see that there's a situation that happens. And we are let in in the first two chapters. And if you've never read the book of Job, a little homework assignment for you this week. You've got to read the book of Job because it is outstanding. 
But the first couple of chapters, the Bible lets us into some privileged information. The Bible tells us that basically there is a cosmic conversation that takes place between God and Satan. So the Bible says that God is, is, is sitting on his throne one day, and the angels are each coming before him, passing before God to give an account for what they've done. And as the angels are doing this, the Bible tells us that one of the angels that comes across God is Satan. Satan comes to give an account for what he has done, which, by the way, is really fascinating. Because what that tells us is that Satan cannot do anything that's outside of God's control. Satan cannot do anything that's outside of God's control which introduces a whole bunch of other questions, which we're going to get into later in this series. But basically, Satan comes before God, and fascinatingly enough, it's God who brings up Job. God is the one who raises the topic. And so God says, hey, Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There's no one like him. The guy is faithful. The guy is upright. The guy loves me. And Satan goes, oh, Job, that guy? He goes, the only reason that guy loves you, God, is because you give him stuff. That's the only reason he loves you. He's, he's happy, he's wealthy, he's healthy, he's got everything. You've blessed him so much. And then Satan says, but I'll tell you what, you take that stuff away from him, you take all that stuff away from him, I guarantee you, God, he will curse you to your face. He will drop his faith faster than you know, right? He's gonna drop you like a bad habit if that's the case. God says, okay. So here, here's what's gonna happen, Satan. I will allow you to basically do anything you want. Don't hurt the man, but take those things away from him. The Bible tells us that over the first couple of chapters, that's exactly what Satan does. And we see that pretty much in one fell swoop, Job's family, Job's possessions, Job's wealth, and ultimately even Job's health are taken from him. And by the time you get to the end of chapter two, you see Job, the Bible says that he has been smitten with a disease that's so terrible that he's covered with painful boils. And at the end of chapter two, he is literally sitting in a trash dump, scratching his wounds with broken pieces of pottery. And it's interesting because what we see is Job is really the representation of all of every angle of human suffering, pain, loss, tragedy, disease. Job embodies all of it. And here he is sitting there in this terrible situation. And then what makes matters worse is for the rest of the book of Job, all the way up till chapter 37, basically what it is, is it's a group of people who surround Job and are basically arguing over what in the world happened. The book of Job is really a bunch of people that are trying to figure out the problem of human suffering. And they're all giving different opinions and philosophies of why human suffering is there. Basically, from chapter 1 to chapter 37 is all of the people in Job's life, his family and his friends, all giving their opinion on why Job is suffering, right? And it's interesting. When you look through the book of Job, what you see is all of the different ideas about suffering are really represented in the book of Job. So let me just kind of tell you what I'm talking about. Like, for example, one of the views of suffering that you see in the book of Job comes from Job's wife. And Job's wife basically looks at Job and she says, uh, it's God's fault. That's her opinion. She sees Job. She sees that he's suffering. And she says to him, why are you still holding on to your faith? Curse God and die. That's her response. In other words, she says, it's God's fault. God is either a monster, because why would he let you suffer this way? Or he does not exist at all. So either way, abandon your faith. Either way, just quit God and just cut it out and just curse God and die. That's her response. And then you have Job's friends, which I put that in parentheses because these guys are terrible friends, terrible friends. The Bible says they come around him, and rather than saying, no, this is God's fault, these guys say, no, 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 it's your fault, Job. The reason you're suffering is because obviously God is good, God is perfect, God doesn't want you to, to, to go undergo suffering, so you must have sinned, you see? 
See, Job, if you were to confess your sin, if you would stop being so proud and so arrogant and actually humble yourself, then God would restore you back to all of your prosperity, right? Here's what I find so fascinating is that these same schools of thought as it relates to human suffering, these same conversations persist even until today, don't they? Because today, what are some of the primary views on suffering? Well, you have some people like Job's wife who say it's God's fault. You have some people who say, well, God is either a monster for allowing this to happen or he doesn't exist at all. Either way, curse God and die. Curse God and die. Just forget about God altogether. And some people take that vantage point. And of course, there's other people who take the, the, the kind of the position of Job's friends. They say, no, 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 God is awesome. God is perfect. And so any suffering is because we must have done something wrong, right? And so that tsunami that wiped out that whole city must have been a bunch of sinful people in that city. So God just destroyed them with the tsunami and that's what happened, right? It's the fascinating thing is the book of Job tells us that at least in the book of, at least in the case of Job, neither of those things is true. Neither one of those things is true. Neither one of those things is the case. And so you have all these people giving all their thoughts on suffering, this argument, basically, this commentary, this debate on why human suffering happens. And in the middle of this debate is poor old Job, the guy who's suffering, right? And what does he say? Well, he over and over again throughout the book of Job, here's what Job basically says. He says, God, I don't know why this is happening. And I demand an answer. He says, my wife is wrong. My friends are crazy but I don't know why this is happening. So God, I demand that you give me an answer. Why is this happening? And my guess is, man, if you've ever found yourself in pain, you've prayed that prayer before. God, answer me. Why is this happening? And like I said, 37 chapters, it appears that God is silent, that God is absent until you get to chapter 38. And something awesome happens in Job chapter 38. God himself appears in the conversation. Everyone thought he was quiet. Everyone thought he was absent. But now God shows up in Job chapter 30. I just got to tell you too, if you don't have time to read the whole book of Job this week, at least do this for me. Read chapter 38 to 41. Those four chapters, 38, 39, 40, and 41, contain within them some of the most powerful chapters in the whole Bible where God is responding to Job. But for our sake, I just want to survey it a little bit. So chapter 38, let's go ahead and start right at verse one. So you got your Bibles open. Let's take a look at this. Here's what it says. Then the Lord spoke to Job. All right, let's stop there. We didn't get very far, did we? (laughs) Then the Lord spoke to Job. I just got to stop there and tell you how much I love that real quick because I love that. And especially in the context of what's happening in this book, because if you go through the book of Job, it's this person spoke, then that person spoke, then this guy spoke, then that guy spoke, then Job's wife spoke, and then Job spoke, and then Bildad spoke, and then Zophar spoke, and then this guy spoke, and then Elihu spoke. And it's everyone's opinions and everyone's thoughts and everyone's argument on the whole thing. But then you get to chapter 38, and it says, now God speaks. I love that. I love that. It says, and then God spoke. And what's more, notice how God speaks. This is great. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of a storm. I'm like, I don't care who you are. That's cool, right? God is speaking to Job through a storm. And the Bible tells us that when God speaks, he chooses all types of different mechanisms to do that. So like, for example, in, in the Old Testament, it tells us on one occasion, God spoke to Elijah in a whisper. And we're told that God speaks through the Bible. He speaks through the word of God. Uh, We're actually told in the Old Testament, God spoke through the prophets at many times and in various ways. So God speaks to humanity through various means of communication. But when God decides that he's going to speak to Job, he's like, "Um, I'm going storm. That's my mode of communication this time. I'm going storm. I'm just telling you, I wish I had that ability. That would be so cool. I wish I could just get up and be like, today's sermon 
is going to be brought to you in form of a storm, right? That would be so cool. I'd be, I would use that with my kids all the time. I'd be like, guys, if you don't go to bed, dad's coming and I'm bringing the storm, right? I would totally misuse this. And so I'm glad I'm not God because I would not do things that aren't right with that. But God comes in a storm. And when he comes in a storm, he comes strong. He comes strong. Because look what he says, verse 2. God said, he said, who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you will answer me. So God comes in a storm, and he comes strong. You notice how the first thing he says in verse 2, he says, who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Some of you have different translations that says, who is this that darkens my counsel? What that literally means is, who is this that's questioning my plan? Who is this that's questioning my wisdom and questioning my purposes? That's what he says. And then this next part, verse 3, is even stronger. Brace yourself like a man. Right? What does that mean? Well, some of you have different translations. I think there's nothing better than the, the old King James on this one. If you have the King James version, it says, gird up your loins, <laughs> which is a statement you never hear anywhere else except for in the King James version, right? Gird up your loins. Basically, brace yourself like a man. What does that mean? It means prepare yourself. It means prepare for action. It means, Job, put your man pants on right now because you and I, were about to have at it. And then he says to him, brace yourself like a man. I'm going to question you. And you're going to answer me. Now, isn't it fascinating that Job, the entire book of Job, has been saying, God, answer me, God, answer me, God, answer me, God, answer me, God, answer me. And then God shows up and he says, I don't have an an I'm not going to give you an answer, but instead I'm going to give you some questions. I got, I'm the one who's going to ask you questions, Job. And what, what happens from this point forward is that God basically launches into a bombardment from chapter 38 to chapter 41 of over 70 questions that are directed right at Job. Over 70 questions. And of course, we don't have time to get into all of them, but let me give you a sampling of some of them. If you look down at verse four, he says, Job, where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy, right? And so God starts into Job and just a little sampling. He, he starts off, and the place he starts is he says, Job, where were you when the earth was founded? Where were you when the earth was created? Job, do you understand that? And like I said, question after question from chapter 38 to chapter 41, you see God over 70 questions. It's interesting. A lot of commentators point out that there's some structure to Job's questions. And I'll just show you just kind of an outline real quick. One commentator said it this way. He said, chapter 38 is pretty much God asking the question, Job, can you comprehend creation? That's the first question he asks. Can you comprehend creation? So he starts, he talks about the earth. Then he talks about the sea. It's like, Job, do you, have you plumbed the depths of the sea? He talks about the stars. He says, Job, can you hold together the Pleiades? Job, can you loosen Orion's belt? question after question after question. So, so pretty much all of chapter 38 is, can you comprehend creation? Then pretty much all of chapter 39 is, can you care for my creation? And he starts talking about the animals and he starts saying, Job, can you take care of the mountain goat and the mountain lion? Can you take care of all of these animals in creation? I do that so well, Job. And so he's, he says, can you comprehend my creation? Can you care for my creation? Then all of chapter 41 or uh, 40 and 41 is basically, can you control, can you, can, Job, can you control my creation? Everything that you see, everything that you know, everything that you can't even comprehend, I comprehend it, I care for it, and I control it is basically what he says. It's actually kind of funny, too, when you go through this, some of the points God makes are really powerful, and some of them are kind of comical. 
In fact, one of my favorite, like I said, we don't have time to get into all of them, but I do want you just to pay attention. If you have your Bibles, glance down at uh, chapter 39, verse 13. I think this is great. Job is ta- or God is talking to Job about the ostrich. In the middle of this whole conversation, he starts talking about the ostrich, and here's what he says. I think this is great. He says, The wings of the ostrich flap joyfully, though they cannot compare with the wings and the feathers of the stork. She lays her eggs in the ground, and then she lets them warm in the sand, unmindful that a foot may crush them, that some wild animal may trample them. She treats her young harshly as if they were not hers. She cares not that her labor was in vain. Verse 17. For God did not endow her with wisdom or give her a share of good sense. In other words, he says, Job, the ostrich, it's a big dumb bird. (laughs) Didn't give it any wisdom. God didn't give it any wisdom. But then I love this, verse 18. Yet when she spreads her feathers to run, she laughs at horse and rider. In other words, he says, ostrich is so fast, Job. Big dumb bird runs real fast, right? <laughs> ostrich can go up, uh, you guys know this, ostrich can go upward to 45 miles an hour. And God's like, Job, who is the creative initiative behind the ostrich project? Who, who is the one who created the big dumb bird who runs real fast? That was me, Job. That was me. And you're like, why did you do that? And I'm like, because I'm God. And I thought it was funny. You know, I was like, big dumb bird runs real fast. I like that. That's good. The ostrich, right? And basically he goes through and and listen, here, here's the question I have for you. Job, God asked Job like over 70 questions. So my question is, what is God doing here? What is he doing? Because I don't know, for me, when I first read this, I thought to myself, man, that is so insensitive. Here, here's Job, who's just basically has had everything stripped from him, and he's just asking God for an answer. And God's like, man up, dude. I got some questions. And he asked him over 70. I'm like, what is God doing. Here's what I think God is doing. I don't think he's being insensitive at all. I actually think what God is doing is brilliant. It's brilliant. I think what God is doing is what every parent who has a toddler in this room understands instinctually. And that is he is trying to help Job understand the distance between the creator and the created. And just like a parent who's talking to a toddler, if you're trying to explain complex ideas that a toddler cannot understand, how do you do that? Well, you start from their vantage point. You begin with things that they're familiar with, and then you work your way backwards. Isn't that true? Whenever, whenever you're ta- for those of you who are parents of toddlers, whenever a toddler asks you a question that's complex, how do you even attempt to address something that you know they can't comprehend? Well, you try to start with things that are familiar to them. You know, you, what you're, you know your teddy bear? You know how, how that, it's, okay, it's kind of like that, right? That's how you sort of do that. Or, or for some of you, you know, you got toddlers, and they, they ask you questions. They're like, Mommy or, you know, Daddy, how does a cell phone work? And you're like, oh, geez, I don't even know myself, you know? And you're like, and so you're like, how do you explain that? And so you're like, uh, okay, you know, you know your toy rocket ships? You know your, your toy rockets? They're like, yeah. You're like, okay, well, there's real rockets, big ones, and they launch them into outer space. They have satellites attached to them. And then the satellites orbit the planet, and, and do you know what a satellite is? And they're like, no, you know? And you're like, do you have any other questions about anything else, seriously? And they're like, How, where do babies come from, you know? And you're like, let's go back to the satellite thing for a little while, you know, talk about that. And uh, isn't it true? That's where you start. I remember Jim Gaffigan, such a funny comedian, he said at one point, he said that he was driving, and his son was in the back seat. And he said, his son said, Dad, what's that stick on top of that car? And Jim Gaffigan said to his son, he said, that's not a stick, buddy. That's an antenna. And his son said, well, what's an antenna? And he goes, that's yeah, a stick. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> where do you even start? Where do you even start, right? You have to start somewhere. And that's what, that's, what, that's what God does. He says, Job, Job. He says, let's just start, buddy. The earth, you know the earth? 
how you have no idea how it got there and no one really, everyone has a theory, but no one knows for sure. The earth, he's like, I'm the creator of that, all right? I am the mind and the wisdom behind that. He says, Job, you know the stars? You know, you know when you look up in the sky and Ple- the Pleiades and Orion, how they keep their form and night after night, the constellations stay in their places? You know how that takes place? What is it that's holding that together? What is it that, what is it that, that, that weaves time and space together in such a manner that the universe is so finely tuned that human existence can actually occur? What's behind that? He says, Job, that's, that's me. All right? I, I, he's starting from Job's vantage point and he's trying to get backwards. He says, Job, Job, you know how quantum physicists estimate that there's over 10 uh, measurable dimensions? Who's, who's holding all of that together? Who is the mind that is orchestrated? Who is the strength that is created? Who's behind all that? And basically, he's starting with things that Job understands to help him understand the great distance between the creator and the created. I was thinking about this this week, and um, one of the things I was doing uh, with my boys this week, it was, it was kind of cool, as we were um, playing outside. And you guys know how after it rains real bad, how those giant earthworms, those big night crawlers, like litter the sidewalk. And so that's like heaven for my boys. I love that. And so we were playing with the worms and kind of goofing around with those. And I, I had this idea. I said, I said, hey, guys, let's play a game with the earthworms. And I said, so each of you grab your best earthworm. And I, had a ta- I got this little table out, and I put some water on it. And I said, I want you to put your earthworm on the table, and we're going to have a race. And whichever earthworm wins the race wins. It's going to be kind of fun. You know, was, they, they love this. They thought it was awesome. So I said, okay, get your worm. They got their worm. I said, I want you to name your worm. Give your worm a name. And so my oldest son named his worm Buddy. He's like, my, mine's going to be Buddy. I was like, that's a great name for a worm. And my youngest son, I was like, what do you want to name your, your worm? And he said, I want to name mine Free and in the Wild. And I was like, that's the name of your worm? I was like, I am so proud of you on so many levels because that is just awesome. So, he, so we had Buddy and Free and in the Wild, and we put him on the table and I was like, okay, I want you to drop them uh, when I say go, and then they're going to race to the finish line. And so I said, American set, go. And they dropped their worms, and they're just, they're, my boys are just clapping. Yeah, go, go freeing in the wild, you know, go, buddy. And they're cheering for their worm, and eventually one of them crossed the finish line. They loved it, and I said, let's play again, and we played again, and we did this like four or five times and did this whole thing, right? But <laughs> when we were playing this game, the thought occurred to me at one point. I thought to myself, I wonder if these worms have any idea at all what's happening right? That there's these giant human beings who, who have named them Free and in the Wild and Buddy, right? And they are playing a game and they are ra- and they're clapping and cheering for these worms right now. Like, I'm like, do they have any idea what's going on? It's like, probably not. I'm guessing if the worm is thinking anything, which I don't know if, even if worms can think, but if he's thinking anything, he's probably thinking, I don't remember being here, you know? <laughs> I just guess I'll just keep going this way. That's probably what they're thinking. And you're like, how do you, how do, how does a lesser form of intelligence comprehend things that a higher form of, of creation understands? How does that happen? How does a higher form of creation, like human beings, how do we ex- express things like the general theory of relativity? How do we explain that to a lower form of creation like an earthworm? And listen, here's what I would contest. I would contest that the distance between a lower form of creation and a higher form of creation is is infinitely smaller than the gap between the creator and the created. You see, this is what God is going for in the book of Job. He says, Job, I'm the creator. I am the one who holds it all together. I am the mind and the strength behind it all. And, and, and so I'm God, Job, and, 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 and you're, you're a created thing. 
and you're a created person who I love. But, but you got to understand there's a gap between those two things. He basically says, Job, all of the wisdom and all the knowledge that you have amounts to a thimble full of water compared to the oceans of the world. Because my knowledge and my wisdom is so extravagant. I love the way Evelyn Underhill put it. She said it this way. She said, if God were small enough to be understood, he would not be big enough to be worshipped. And I think that's a great statement. If God was small enough to be understood, if, he could, if we could whittle him down and fit him into our minds, he would cease to be God. And he wouldn't be, he wouldn't be uh, worthy enough and powerful enough to be worshipped. I think Evelyn Underhill does a great job of summarizing basically what God is saying in, Genesis, in, uh, in Job chapter 38 to Job chapter 41, right? And so what's God's response to Job? God's response to Job after Job says, God, answer me, answer me, answer me, answer me. God basically says, here's my response. My response is, I'm God, and you're not God. And so who are you? And it's interesting because you would think, and I know when I first read the book of Job, I really struggled with that. Because I remember I thought, man, that seems like it's such an unsatisfying answer, right? It seems so unsatisfying. God could have told Job more than that. If you think about it, he could have. He could have said, hey, Job, look, I know that this doesn't make sense to you, and I know that this is really hard, but you've got to understand, like, Earlier, I had this conversation with Satan, and he was saying some stuff about you, and I knew it wasn't true, and so I'm testing your faith. That's what I'm doing. God could have said that to Job. He could have given that, right? But he didn't. He could have told Job. He could have said, Job, I know this is really hard, and I know you don't understand, but I just got to tell you, man, uh, I'm actually writing the first book of the Bible right now, and you're actually the topic of it. And so for generations to come, people are going to use your example as an example in pain and suffering, Job. Isn't that awesome? In fact, thousands of years from now, there's going to be a group of people in Medina, Ohio. And Job's like, what? Where's that? You know, he's like, yeah, in Medina, Ohio, there's going to be a group of people who are sitting and are dealing with things, and they're going to find comfort and refuge and truth because of you, Job. He could have said that, but he doesn't. God just says, who are you? I'm God, you're not, so who are you? And that's his response. And I would think, man, that is so unsatisfying. But the interesting thing is, when you look at Job's response, you realize this was extremely satisfying to him. Because look what he says in Job chapter 42. If you flip the page, look at Job chapter 42. Here's how Job responds after this litany of questions that God gives to Job in the storm. Job replied to the Lord, I know you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? And then Job says, surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. That's fascinating, by the way. The word wonderful literally means it's outside of my ability to understand. He says, God, I... I, I, I was talking about things I had no idea about. This is out of my pay grade, is what he says. And then look what he says in verse four. You said, listen now and I'm gonna speak. I will question you and you shall answer me. This is so good. Verse five, my ears had heard of you. Now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and I repent in dust as that. Did you catch that? I love that. He says, he goes, God, I heard of you before. I went to church. I heard some sermons, man. I read some theology books. I knew some stuff about you. I heard about you. He says, but now I've seen you. He says, now I've had a personal experience with you. I have met the living God. And he says, in my response, no further questions. I have nothing else to say. And so I repent before you, God. And listen, here's the thing. If you're going through pain and suffering and loss right now, what you need 
more than a philosophical response is you need a personal encounter with the living God. That alone is what can change you. And listen, here's the crazy thing the book of Job tells us. Sometimes the only way to encounter God on that level is to go through the pain and suffering and hard thing that God is accomplishing in it. And so God's response to Job, his response, he says, Job, I'm God, you're not, who are you? And man, isn't that comforting? Isn't that, isn't that just so soothing to the soul? <laughs> you're like, no, right? That's what I, I like, isn't that a sad, uh, listen, I think that response, the, the response we see in Job is intellectually satisfying. It's intellectually satisfying. God, God's ways are higher than ours. We can't fully understand his purposes. That's intellectually satisfying. I have heard people say to me, that's a cop-out. God's ways are higher than yours and you can't understand all of his purpose. That's such a cop-out. And I'm like, that's not a cop-out. That's intellectual integrity. That's what that is. That's reality because if you have a God that you can whittle down into your thinking, you're not dealing with a God anymore, right? That's a God of your own creation. That's a God of your own invention. That's a powerless God. And so there's, inte- there's intellectual uh, consistency within that. And so it's intellectually satisfying. God is God and we're not God. But even though it's intellectually satisfying, it's not emotionally satisfying. Not at all. It does, it's right, but it's insufficient. So here's what I love about the Bible is the Bible doesn't just tell us that, but the Bible gives us more than that as well. And this is where that anchor statement comes in. So let me introduce you to the anchor statement and then I'll close out and we'll be finished. But here's the anchor statement I want to show you today. As we conclude in in Job 38, here it is right here. I can't always be certain of his reasons, of God's reasons, but I can't always be certain of his love. Here's an anchor statement you could take with you. If you're in pain and suffering, whenever you're on that mountain and you're looking for something that's going to that's gonna bear weight and you're looking for something that's going to get you through, here's a statement you can bank on. I can't always know his reasons. I can't always understand his reasons. I can't always be certain of his reasons, but I can always, always, always be certain of his love. Some of you are like, well, how do you know that though? How do you know that he loves us? How do you know that he's not a monster? How do you know that God doesn't just like to see us wiggle and see us squirm? How do you know that he loves us? How can you conclude that from the book of Job? And listen, I don't conclude that from the book of Job. I conclude that from the cross of Jesus Christ. See, because the cross tells us, the storm tells us that God is God and there's reasons that we may never know. We might not be certain, but the, but the cross tells us God loves us and you can be certain about that. Listen, why else would the God of the universe, the one who made the stars and made the earth and created the animals and controls it all, why would he enter into the human situation, embrace suffering and embrace pain and he himself go to the cross and die if he wasn't committed to, 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 to our flourishing and to our love. There, there is no other faith system, there is no other religion that says that the creator entered into the human situation and suffered for those who he created. Listen, the cross is a profound declaration. God loves you. God loves you. He loves me. He loves us so much. He is so dedicated to our flourishing. He is so dedicated to our forgiveness. He is so dedicated to our well-being that he himself embraced the cross for our sake. And it's a profound declaration of his love. So the resurrection speaks of Christ's victory. But the cross speaks of his love. And one thing that you can be, you might not always be certain of the reasons why you're suffering. You might not always be certain of those reasons. But there's one reason you know that you, there's one reason you know for sure that it's that that it's not, and it's not because God doesn't love you, because the cross tells us no, no, no. 
God, Jesus Christ is so committed to you. He is so committed to your well-being that he himself embraced suffering and he himself embraced loss and he himself embraced, embraced those things for our sake. And he loves us and he loves us. And that is a statement. I might not always be certain of his, of his reasons, but I can be certain of his love. That is a true statement. The Bible tells us that is something, an anchor that you can put in your soul in the midst of hardship. I don't always know why God is doing what he's doing. I don't know his reasons, but I know he's God. I know he knows stuff I don't. I know that he is the creator and I'm the creator. I know that, I know that. But one thing I'm certain of is that he loves me. He loves me and this must be for my good and this must be for my benefit and I can't see it right now. I don't understand it right now, but he's accomplishing stuff that's way outside of my pay grade. He loves me. He loves me and you can be sure of that. See, because the Bible doesn't always give us the answers we want. I think we want to know exactly what God is doing. But the answer, the Bible doesn't always give us the answers we want, but it gives us the answers that we need. Your God, our God is a good father. He loves his kids. And like any parent in this room who has a toddler, there are some times you have to say, would you just trust me? Would you just believe me because I'm your dad? Right? How many times have you as a parent, I say that to my kids all the time. They're like, why are we doing this? Why are we doing this? I'm like, because of this. Because eventually I'm like, look, I'm just your dad. That's why. Right? I'm your dad. I love you. I, care. I have your interest in mind. That's what I'm going after. He's a good father, and he loves his children. I might not always be certain of his reasons, but I can always be certain of his love. Let's pray together. Oh, Jesus, your word to us is good. I am so thankful you did not leave us in the dark on this topic because, honestly, God, this introduces a whole crisis for us pain and suffering and loss and pain screams so loudly that sometimes, sometimes it's hard for us to even orient ourselves to reality. And yet, God, I, I love it because you've given us, you've given us the, these incredible anchors that we can lean on, that we can hope in. The truth is, we might not ever fully understand the reasons why you do the things you do. You're, you're God, and, and, and you're infinitely wiser and infinitely more knowledgeable and infinitely more powerful than we are, but we take confidence in the fact that there's nothing that happens outside of your control. Satan himself is controlled by you. There is nothing he can do without you. And so, Father, that gives us hope because what it tells us is it tells us that you are orchestrating and planning things for our good and for our benefit because you love us. And so while we can't be certain of the reasons, we can be certain of your love, we, we can be certain that you have our interests in mind that you want to give glory to yourself and you want to cause us to be more in love with you. You want to draw us closer to yourself. You're, you're working out all kinds of things that we don't understand. It's out of our pay grade. It's out of our pay grade. And so I pray that our response, Jesus, would be that we would respond to you in trust, that we would respond to you with authenticity of heart, but we would also respond to you with faith, that we would say, God, I don't understand it. I don't like it. God, I have a lot of questions. God, I'm frustrated. God, this hurts. I pray that we'd pray honestly. But Jesus, I pray that we'd maintain faith. That we'd say, I trust you. You're a good father and you love your children and you're dedicated to our flourishing. And you can accomplish things through suffering that we don't understand. So Father, I just want to submit that to you this morning. As we worship and we pray, I pray that we just cry out our hearts in prayer to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.